is Easter. Do you love Easter? Hot cross buns and, and sunny weather. Yeah, it's, it's come back. And uh, chicks, apparently, and all, all these little things. I remember a few years ago being at a, a Christian sort of conference over Easter. A big one. 4,000 people there, at least. Uh, and it was quite funny because... Uh, I was there probably from Thursday to Tuesday, something like that. And on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it was very normal. You know what a, a crowd of British people are like, very normal. Uh, <laughs> that's a stretch, but you know what I mean. We, we, we sort of walk around and talk to one another and, and generally ignore everybody else as if we're the only people there. And then Easter Sunday morning came, and I went out. There was this very early sunrise meeting, so I ran off to that. And as I was coming back, the normal everyone else was, was rising from their beds and coming out. And everybody was smiling. And they were all smiling and greeting everybody. And I thought, what's happened to my country? And then I realized, oh, it's Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, we're, we're sort of allowed to be extra smiley and extra happy. Uh, but it's, it's a special day, isn't it? A day when we can celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, we've been going through Mark's gospel here at Ladyfield for a few weeks now, and we're really finishing that up today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on Mark as he gives us the resurrection uh, in his book. There's four books in the New Testament uh, that tell us about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And somebody has said that these four, these uh, books called gospels, what, what, what is a gospel? Well, somebody said a gospel is a passion account. So the account of the, the last week of Christ, it's a passion account with an extended introduction. And that's kind of what they are. If you think about it, you've got these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they cover 30 years of Christ's life in a very short space. In Mark, instantly. <laughs> it's not there at all. And in the other, there's a little bit of space given to the first 30 years. Then you get about three years. Christ doing miracles and teaching and dealing with demons and feeding the masses and all that kind of stuff. About three years worth of of life and action. And that's covered in in the next chunk, which is quite a substantial part of the Gospels. But then the last week, just seven days from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and then you go through the week, the crucifixion on the Friday, and then the tomb is empty on the next Sunday. That week covers something like 40% of these Gospels. And so obviously this really is the focus. This really is the point of the whole story. In fact, the way Mark does it, he, he tells the story, the, uh, the account of the life of Christ like this. He begins right back in verse 1 of chapter 1 by telling us that this is the Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He tells us who he is. He's the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed deliverer, and he's the Son of God. And, and for the next 15, 16 chapters, he then goes on through the ministry of Christ. And, and as you read it, if you, if you read it carefully, you'll find that time and again, it's, it's really making very clear who Jesus is using Old Testament kind of language little hints and allusions and quotes and so on. And it's all building this sense of, yeah, this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He is God walking on two feet in our midst. And yet the people in the story, they don't seem to get it. We we get it, we're reading it, we see what, what Mark's told us in the first verse, but the people on the ground with Jesus, they're not clear. His followers, they don't seem to get it. His family, they certainly don't get it at that time. Uh, his, um, 
the, the religious leaders, the, the, the folks in charge of the nation, they absolutely don't get it, and they blame Satan for all of this stuff that Jesus is doing. Uh, and so you just think, well, when is somebody going to realize who he is? The demons get it. That's kind of interesting. When, whenever Jesus encounters a demon, they say, oh, you're you know, most holy one. You know, they know who he is. And sometimes the desperate get it. But, but the people you'd expect don't. And so you go through this book and you come to the eighth chapter, which is really the hinge, right in the middle, the middle point. And there Jesus says to his disciples, who are the people calling me? What, what names are they using? And then he says, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter steps forward and he says, you're the Christ. Yeah, finally. Jesus, the Christ. Finally, Peter tells him, you're the Christ. And then Jesus starts to say, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be handed over, betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And just when the disciples think, ah, we've got it, they realize we haven't got it. What do you mean you're going to die? No way. And for the next half of the book, Jesus resolutely is marching towards Jerusalem. And his followers are following, confused, amazed, afraid, uh, in wonder. What is he doing? This is just going to, this is going to be a disaster. And yet it's exactly what Jesus intended because he came, as we saw on Friday, if you were here, you, you would have uh, recognized what I've said already, that, that Jesus came from heaven to die. That was his mission. And in his death, everyone left him. They all fled. He was all alone. Even his father uh, turned his back and he cried, my God, my God, why have you, even you, forsaken me? And then finally it says in chapter 15 that Jesus, with a loud cry, breathed his last and then you get that verse, I think it's 39 in chapter 15. And the centurion, the, the battle-hardened uh, Roman soldier, the one who had been on the front lines, who had fought the battles, who had killed with his hands and, and killed with his sword and killed with his spear, and he'd seen it over and over and over again. He's the one standing right there, right there as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And when he saw how Jesus died, isn't that interesting? When he saw how Jesus died, he exclaimed, surely this man was the Son of God. Isn't that powerful? It's the climax of the book. It's, it's the, the, the sort of the crescendo. The whole thing's been building until this point, And finally, it's the one who's standing physically as close as you can possibly get to Jesus on the cross. He sees, even though it's dark all around. He can see because he's right there. And he says, surely this man was the Son of God. And so Mark tells us right at the beginning, he's the Christ, the Son of God. Halfway through, Peter says, you're the Christ. And then right at the end, the climactic moment, the centurion says, this man was the Son of God. And you kind of get to that point, and, and if, if Mark was a, was a concert, this would be such a moment. You've got death, you've got all the, the, the emotion, all the intensity of that, and yet at the same time, the, this crescendo of declaration, of, of recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. Wow. But then what? Is, is that the end? I mean, if that's the climactic moment, if that's the crescendo point, if that's the, the, the point to which the whole story has been going, does Mark just stop there? No, he doesn't. He carries on after the centurion statement. Not too much, but there's got to be some, some little tying up of loose ends, shall we say. 
There always is, isn't there, when you tell an account of something, whether it's a fictional made-up story or, as in this case, something that actually happened. You, you always finish it off. You don't just kind of get to the, the big punchline and then say, yeah, <laughs> there you go. So how does Mark finish the story? He's reached this high point. But now what? If you look at the passage, page 720, I think, in a blue Bible, Look at the passage. Actually, just before the bit that Tim read, Mark gives us a couple of verses. I just want to read those. It says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It's kind of interesting, really, isn't it? I mean, Mark, for 15 chapters, has barely mentioned women. If you want to read about women uh, in the life of Christ, read Luke. Luke's just full of Jesus interacting with women. You discover that Jesus certainly wasn't anti-woman at all. Okay, very, very much honoring women, interacting with them, allowing them to sit at his feet and uh, be his disciples, a kind of image you get with Mary and Martha in Luke 10. All of that is very Luke. You just imagine the bedside manner of the the Dr. Luke getting this information out of eyewitnesses and, and being able to get the stories from the ladies. Mark doesn't have that. But now at this point, the men have fled. All his disciples have run away into the dark the night before. But the women are still there. And these women are going to be very important characters in the rest of the story as Mark tells it. Which, incidentally, just let me throw this thought out there. If Mark made this up, that wasn't a good move. Let's say that uh, Jesus never rose from the dead and that the disciples kind of stirred it up and tried to get this myth going. If you're going to write an account to get a myth going, you wouldn't have women be significant characters. Not at that time. You you want to have big figures, big characters, not women that have never been mentioned. Women whose testimony doesn't even count in a court of law. And yet, there they are. And they're going to be the main characters for the rest of Mark's gospel. Which makes me think that this wasn't made up. This really is true, and you simply wouldn't do it that way. And so you come to this uh, part of the reading that that Tim read. It was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. It's about 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. And between 3 p.m. roughly when Jesus breathed his last, when he died on the cross, and the point at which he's buried, you haven't actually got that much time. You see, the Sabbath for the Jews begins at sundown on the Friday. Melanie and I went to Israel a few years ago, and on the the Friday evening, we were uh, taken as a group right into the heart of the Orthodox Jewish part of of the city. And it wouldn't have been that significant any other day, but Friday night it's significant, because after the sun goes down, all the Jews come out and wander around, because they're not working. And it was quite a surreal experience to be standing there with these uh, Orthodox Jews uh, circling us, looking at us a bit suspiciously and probably feeling like they were in a bit of a goldfish bowl. And at the end of this area, they had these barricades and and sometimes they'd have trouble with these Jews uh, throwing stones at passing cars because that's working on the Sabbath. You see, this is the Friday evening. And as soon as the sun sets, they can't work. And so somehow between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., all this action has to happen. 
And so let's just scan down that. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. We know from the other Gospels that he hadn't approved of their decision to crucify Jesus, to get him condemned to death. He he was uh, a secret disciple, John tells us. All we know here is that he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. That puts him in a positive light. And, And he went to Pilate. It says he went boldly, took some courage. You don't just march up to Pilate and say, excuse me, uh, Pilate, got a request. That's just not the done thing. Especially Pilate, not the greatest of friends to the Jews in many ways. But, but Joseph of Arimathea wanted to do something. It, it wasn't right that, that Jesus' body should be treated like all the other common criminals, uh, taken down and, and left for the, the birds or, or thrown into a common grave. And so he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. He wanted to bury Jesus properly. Pilate's a bit surprised. He checks the sundial on his wrist. He says, it's only just gone three. Surely he's not dead yet. And so he summons the the centurion. The centurion comes to Pilate and and says, yes, he's already dead. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why did Jesus die quickly? Because, I mean, they could hang on the cross for days. It's a brutal, horrible way to die. And yet in six hours, Jesus was done. Makes you wonder if maybe, I suppose on a, just a, a purely natural level, the flogging must have been so intense that it took a lot out of him. But when you read the accounts of his death, it, it kind of get the sense that he chose when he was done. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so he gave a loud cry and he chose to breathe his last. It was a, a choice on his part. And the centurion confirmed that Jesus was dead and Pilate said, okay. You can have the body. And so the clock is ticking. There isn't much time here to go to Pilate, to have the centurion called. The centurion comes, uh, all of this interaction. And then Joseph has to go and buy some linen. uh, And then he goes and gets the body and wraps the body and takes it to a tomb. A tomb that's been cut in the rock. This is quite common among the richer members of society. You take a a rock face and you uh, cut into it must be a hard job. You cut your way in and, and then inside this sort of a man-made cave you have these uh, ledges where bodies can be laid. Sometimes you'd have tunnels sort of uh, like you'd have in a... I'm trying to think what the word is. You, you know, those places where they... Uh, in a hospital where the, the bodies are kept. They sort of slide them in. You know, you've probably seen them on television. They sort of have that in the rock. These little tunnels carved and the bodies slid in. And and they could have tens of of bodies in these tombs. But this was a new tomb. And there was some uh, ledges there for the body. And and he brought Jesus and he brought him to his own tomb, his family tomb. Maybe he just moved to the area. We don't know. But he had this new tomb and it was ready. And he put Jesus in there. And the clock is ticking. The sun is setting. Time is short. But it does tell us very importantly at the end of the the chapter, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They were eyewitnesses. They saw the place. And then the chapter ends. The sun sets. They head home. What must they have been thinking? Can you imagine? Imagine these women uh, getting home just before dark and closing the door and just collapsing onto a chair. Somewhere uh, in town, somewhere, there there are the disciples cowering, hiding, scared, 
You just imagine all the mixed emotions, uh, some perhaps pacing around, just, just processing everything that they'd seen and how everything had gone so terribly wrong from their perspective. Others sitting with, with vacant looks, uh, just staring off into space. Uh, others fretting, mumbling, maybe some praying. We don't know what they were doing, but I'm sure that there was one question hanging over every one of them. It was not supposed to end like this. This isn't supposed to be the end of the story. We, we've been with Jesus. We were, we were with Jesus back in Galilee when he was preaching the, the beginning. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. We were there. We saw it. We saw the miracles. We, we saw the feedings of the, the 5,000, the 4,000, the, the stilling of the sea. We've seen all of that. Uh, and we've come to Jerusalem and he's died. And it's not supposed to end like this. This cannot be the end of the story. That must have been the longest Sabbath ever, don't you think? For those women, for those men, for those people that were certain that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and now he was gone. He was buried in a, in a tomb and, uh, and all they could do was, was ponder and pray and wonder and fret and stress and fear and hide and doubt and, uh, and question, is this the end? This cannot be the end. It's not supposed to finish like this. Then you come to chapter 16. You could almost do with a 24-hour break at this point, just holding that thought, because that's all they had, that question, for 24 hours, more, in fact. But it does bring us to the end of Saturday in chapter 16, verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was over, so that's as the sun sets on the Saturday... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, there they are again, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Obviously they ran out of time on the Friday. The sun sets on the Saturday and, uh, and for a brief time perhaps the, the, the vendors were, were selling again just to uh, take the opportunity. Uh, Sabbath was over, remember, as the sun set. So they, they rushed out and they bought some spices and, and they wanted to anoint the body. Don't think of Egyptian mummies at this point, okay? The, the, the Jews didn't do that. They didn't try to preserve the body. It was more a, an act of, uh, of devotion, to, to, to put spices all around the body and to anoint the body and, and to make it so that the stench of death somehow could be minimized. And it would take a lot of spice to get rid of the stench of death. But that's what they had. They bought a lot of spices and they were ready. And then verse 2, it says, Very early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, they're, they're so... They're so caught up in everything that they've, they've made plans for the anointing spices, but they haven't figured out how to get the stone out of the way. Now, these stones were huge, I mean, sort of uh, big enough to cover a small doorway, thick rock that, that uh, one person could roll into place because you roll it into place downhill. But to get it out of the way, they're certainly not going to be able to do it. So as they're walking, carrying the spices, coming to the tomb, early on the Sunday morning, they're saying to each other, who's going who's to open the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away? I hadn't thought about that. Had you thought about that? I'm sorry, I haven't been able to think straight at all. I understand. And they're just all mixed up, all confused, all, all full of uh, the emotion of the past 36 hours. And they're coming towards the tomb. And I suppose, uh, it's a bit of a 
bit of a suppose, but I suppose it's almost like they were saying, where are the men? Where are those big burly fishermen when we need them? Where's Peter, James and John? I wish they were here. They could move the stone. But they're not. It's just the women. They're coming to the tomb. Verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. As you would be. Right? Imagine that. You're walking, you have to crouch down to get into this dark cave where there's a, supposed to be a dead body, right? And you walk in, and there's no dead body, and there's a, a bright, shining, perhaps smiling person dressed in dazzling white. That would shock me. Okay, maybe you're made of tougher stuff than me, but I would go, ah, hoo, hoo, and fall backwards at that. And naturally, this young man, this uh, angel, as the other Gospels tell us, says, don't be alarmed. That's always a sign that it's an angel in the Bible. Don't be afraid, because your tendency is to fear when you meet an angel. I've never met one that I know of. Um, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified He has risen. Wow. In fact, in the the way it was written, one word, raised. He's been raised. It's just a single word. But imagine the the power of that word. I mean, he's he's risen? He's he's raised? He's not here. He says, see the place where they laid him. Remember, these are eyewitnesses. Two of them know exactly where he was laid. They haven't come to the wrong tomb. This isn't a a special moment because they're all confused. No, they've come to the right place. They know exactly where it is. And they know exactly where the body was. And the body isn't there. And he says, look, he's not here. He is risen. But go, verse 7, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What was going through their minds now? I wonder if if in their minds everything was spinning around and they were going back over everything and retracing in their minds and and repeating and listening again to the mental recording of what Jesus had said. How Jesus had said to them, uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And on the third day I'm going to rise. And they'd never understood it. But now, whoa. Whoa. Maybe they remembered how in chapter 14, they didn't have chapters, but you know what I mean. Jesus had told the disciples that he would go ahead of them to Galilee. And they would meet him there. And they hadn't understood what he meant. But maybe that's what he meant. Because now the angel's telling us that that's what he meant. And obviously that's what he means because he's risen from the dead. This is so amazing. The tomb is empty. They were stunned. They were amazed. In fact, they were afraid. Look at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Huh. <laughs> nice if we could avoid that verse, wouldn't it? Scratch that out of the Bible. But it's there. And in fact, it's not really that unusual for those of us that have been going through Mark. It sort of fits, doesn't it? Think about how many times when people encountered Jesus' power, 
they were afraid. When he stilled the storm, the disciples were terrified. Because uh, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see it time and again through the gospel. Fear as a response to the power of Jesus. Fits. Time and again through Mark's gospel, Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this quiet. And finally, somebody keeps it quiet. Probably not the right thing to do at this point, but but it sort of fits with Mark. and, And I suppose it's just very human, isn't it? It's very real. That for this point in time, later on they did tell and we, a lot of other stuff happened. But, but at this point, they're just so stunned that they're, they're dumbfounded. And the women leave. And you go, well, that's not the end, surely. If you notice in your Bibles, there's a line across the page then. And under the line in brackets, which means it's not... Bible text, it says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. But then you've got 9 to 20. So what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, the early uh, scrolls and manuscripts and books, the early copies of the Bible, the the, the stuff that we get uh, our Bible text from, they don't include it, most of them. And actually, the scholars who look at it and study it and, and, and uh, consider it, they say, absolutely not. Verses 9 to 20, there's no way that that is Mark. It's different terminology. It's a different way of writing, different emphasis, different content. This is somebody else. And so I'm not going to preach those verses because I don't think they're part of the Bible. I can understand why they're written. I mean, if, if you finish with verse 8, wouldn't you want to add something? Wouldn't you want to say, well, okay, let's, let's kind of put a little ending on this. Let's tie a bow. You know, you've got to have the, and they lived happily ever after, haven't you? At the end of, of any story, true or fiction. And this is certainly true, but we've got to have some closure. And so what they did, it seems, was to take bits from the other Gospels and combine them together, and that's what we have. Verses 9 to 20. And the emphasis there is a good emphasis. It, it says, believe. They didn't believe, but they should have believed, and they were rebuked for not believing, and so you must believe. And it's a really big belief emphasis, and I agree with that. I think that's spot on, but it's not written by Mark, therefore I'm not going to preach it. Makes me wonder, how does the story end? Does, um, did Mark originally have another ending that got lost, or, or did he have another ending in mind that he never wrote? I don't know. I suppose if he did, it would make sense for there to be something of Jesus in it. Because so far, all we've got is an empty tomb. Nobody's met Jesus. Nobody's spoken to Jesus. It's just an empty tomb. See where he was laid. He has risen. The the, the words of an angel and an empty tomb, that's all they had. I suppose Mark could have gone on to say, okay, this is what happened. As they left the, the tomb, they met Jesus. And then Jesus met the disciples, and then later on Jesus saw the disciples in Galilee. And he could have gone through those other bits of information. I think it's important that we realize and recognize there is an awful lot of information about the resurrected Christ. In terms of history, there is nothing in history that is as well attested as the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've got the empty tomb, that which is significant. Nobody has ever been able to produce the body. They've never found the bone box of Jesus. They've never been able to say, look here, we've proved it. Here is Jesus, the body. 
And everybody who, who was against what was happening wanted to be able to do that. If there, was, if there was any way that they could have found the body, any money they could have thrown at the project, they would have done it and they would have produced the body and put this whole thing to behead. They would have just shut down this whole Christian thing. But nobody ever did because they never had the body because he rose from the dead and the tomb was empty. And the second bit of evidence is that so many people saw him. Now, if you look in Matthew and Luke and John and also 1 Corinthians and some other parts of the Bible, we have some very significant eyewitness evidence. Now, let me uh, just read to you uh, the way it was put by uh, Peter Williams. He's a, a teacher at Cambridge, a, a professor at Cambridge University. Uh, this is how he put it in terms of the resurrection appearances. He said, Jesus appeared to men and women singly, men and women in groups, Groups ranging from two to five hundred. He appeared indoors, outdoors, in Judea, in Galilee. He appeared in the countryside, in the city. He appeared close up and at a distance. He appeared in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment, without prior appointment, on a hill, by a lake, on a road. He appeared sitting, standing, walking. The variety is quite amazing and he is always talking. He eats with people. He appears to adults, never to children. And Peter Williams goes on to say this, the variety and character of the resurrection appearances is not the sort of thing that is anything like the supposed appearance of ghosts or the religious visions people say they often have. It's something far more real. And that means it's not something you can put down to a certain amount of gullibility or imagination. Jesus rose from the dead. Fact. And the eyewitness evidence is overwhelming. And I suppose Mark could have given us that. But he doesn't. I suppose the options are either this. Either it's verses 9 to 20 as we have it and nobody thinks it is. Or it's another ending that we don't have and that certainly is a possibility. Or maybe some people are thinking he intended to finish with verse 8. You know that feeling, maybe you remember it as a child when you have a story at bedtime and the story is told and you come to the end of the story and you hear the words, and they lived happily ever after and you sort of sink down and pull the covers up knowing that you're about to be prayed with and tucked in and go to sleep. It's that ah, all is well moment. Story's over, it's okay now. The same thing happens in true stories. You tell a true story, you come to the end, and then you put some sort of closing statement on it. This is not fiction. This is absolute truth. But it sort of leaves you hanging. It leaves you sort of uh, off balance, thinking, well, hang on a minute. Come on, Mark. What? Then what? So they left the tomb, and they were trembling, and they were bewildered, and they were afraid, and they didn't say anything to anyone. <laughs> and? Come on. And maybe that's it. Maybe we're not supposed to think the story is complete. Maybe we're not supposed to tie a bow on it and walk away and say, that was a lovely Easter, back to normal life. Maybe we go back to normal life with Easter still hanging over us. Maybe that's what Mark intended. Maybe we are in the same place that those women were. They've heard that Jesus is risen from the dead. They know the tomb is empty, but they haven't seen him. Isn't that where we are? We've heard that Jesus has risen from the dead. If you go to Jerusalem, you can see that the tomb is empty. But we haven't seen the risen Jesus. 
I wonder if maybe Mark ends in a way that connects with us more powerfully perhaps than the others that very importantly cover the resurrection appearances but seem to put closure on the story. Maybe we shouldn't have closure on the Easter story. Jesus is alive. He is risen. And so what? So what do we do with that? Do we believe or not believe? Do we trust him or not trust him? Do we accept the the, the facts of all the resurrection appearances, the fact that people who've tried to disprove it have usually ended up, uh, certainly never disproved it, and they often end up becoming followers of him. This is the most attested fact in history, that Jesus actually definitely physically walked out of the tomb after dying, and he never died again. This is a fact, but the question still stands, where do we stand? What do we do? What does it mean for us? You see, those women left the tomb, and eventually they did talk. And the disciples went up to Galilee, and they did meet with Jesus in Jerusalem and in Galilee. The disciples who had fled, the the Peter who had denied, the failures. Jesus wasn't finished with them. Uh, And maybe as we sit here this morning, we're sitting here, deep down we have this feeling that I'm a failure. I've blown it. My life is nothing to write home about. In fact, I hope no one writes about my life because it's going to be a bit of a mess if they do. Uh, Maybe you feel like that. Uh, And maybe you feel... How can Easter possibly have anything to do with me? And yet it does. It has everything to do with us. Because Easter didn't finish 2,000 years ago. The Easter story is still being told. These women, these men, uh, these fishermen and and tax collectors and zealots, these these people that had nothing special about them became dynamic uh, witnesses of the risen Christ. They ended up turning the whole Roman Empire upside down. They brought the empire to its knees. Within decades, within a couple of centuries, uh, the whole world had been transformed by these people who at this point were still fearful, still trembling, still hidden. Why? Because the fact of Jesus' resurrection got a grip on their lives and it changed them. Within decades, if you could go on fast forward through the history, you'd see these people who at this point were scared and fearful and hiding in in behind locked doors. You'd find them later on willingly laying down their lives because they would not back down on the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb and he's alive. And with that kind of confidence, the story has continued to be told. And over the course of the decades, the centuries, no matter what people throw against it, no matter how many times the Bible is burned, no matter how many Christians are put in prison, no matter how many followers of Christ are martyred for their faith, the story keeps on going, it keeps on growing, it keeps on developing because it's true. And the implications of the empty tomb continue to be written down in eternity. I think Mark's ending is absolutely brilliant. It leaves us hanging, it leaves us wondering, but it leaves us thinking, so what now? There's two kinds of people. There are people who don't have a relationship with God and there are people that do. 
doesn't mean that one type of person is better than the other. It's just that one type has realized they're not good enough and, and they've accepted God's offer. That Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died in our place and he offers us life. And if we will trust in him and say, Jesus, I am an absolute disaster and my life is a mess and I deserve nothing but judgment. But you died in my place and I accept your offer of forgiveness. I accept your offer of life. I want to be part of your family. And then having trusted in him, go from being not a follower to being a follower. That's, that's the difference. It's not that some are better than others. It's just that some really have been gripped by the reality of the cross and the fact of the empty tomb. Implications then for both groups. If you are... Still on the outside, I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but you know what I mean. You're still kind of looking, saying, I'm not sure. It certainly is not, I'm not one of those, you know, real kind of devoted sort of Jesus people. I'm interested, don't get me wrong, I respect, you know know what kind of things you say. But you you know you're sort of still looking in. Well, the question is, as you look into the empty tomb, what will you do in response to that? Jesus rose from the dead. The Father vindicated the Son. The the gospel that Jesus came to die on the cross was proven true because Jesus rose and God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And the question is simply this, will you bow the knee before Jesus? Will you accept that he died in your place and ask him to forgive you for your sin so that you can be part of his family? The tomb is empty every day of the year. The question lingers way beyond Easter Sunday. But don't leave it. Don't say, oh, I'll get round to that eventually. No, get get round to it today. God's brought you here. Take advantage of the opportunity to respond to the death of Christ and the empty tomb and discover the only true life that God offers. What about those of us who uh, have accepted that? who have become followers of Christ. I suppose the question for us is the the question hanging over these women at the end. Will they tell anyone? Or will they just walk away? We know they did. We know the story was spread, the truth was told, the message passed on from person to person. Lives were changed, the empire was changed. The question is the same for us. Are we so gripped? by the fact of the risen Christ and the fact of the empty tomb, that we won't walk out of here this morning and stay quiet. But we'll walk out and tell everyone, no matter what their response, we'll tell them that Jesus is risen. How does the story end? How does the the story of Mark's gospel end? I'm not sure. But I suppose it depends in part on how we respond to it. Because if the end of the story is still being written, then we have a part to play in that. And so we need to ask ourselves and we need to ask God and say, God, what does this mean for me? How, how is my response going to be part of the story that is still being told, the implications of the empty tomb? How will it end? It's up to us. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you this morning that we could get on a plane and we could fly to Jerusalem or to Tel Aviv and take the bus up to Jerusalem and we could walk the streets and we could come to the tomb and we could put our heads in there, we could step inside, we could look and it's still empty. A real tomb and really nobody there. Lord, we praise you this morning that the tomb is empty, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And Lord, as we think about the end of the story, we realize that Mark doesn't give us a a, a nice, comfortable ending so that we can uh, put it to one side and move on, but instead it's left open. We ask that you would work in our lives as we, even today, thousands of years, two hundreds of years later, even today we are part of the ongoing story that's being written because the tomb is empty. Lord, would you stir our hearts for those that don't have assurance, a certainty, an absolute hope of spending eternity with you. Would you chase them? Would you pursue them by your spirit and draw them to you so that they can bow the knee and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Lord, would you pursue them, not allow them to to shake the thought, not allow them to move on or to put it to one side. Chase them, Lord, because you love them. Just like you've chased others of us because you love us. And Lord, would you help all of us by your spirit to be bold witnesses, to tell a dying world about a, a savior who died and yet is more alive than ever today. Lord, we just want to be faithful witnesses of the fact of the resurrection, of the reality of the empty tomb. And somehow, Lord, we want to be part of the ongoing telling of the Easter story, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, not because of someone who died and is still dead, but because of someone who died and is risen from the dead. And there's no one else in that category. And so we worship and we pray in his name. Amen.